This is the Hofstra Radio Alumni Audio Yearbook. Today is May 2nd, 2021. Please tell us your name and the years you were at Hofstra Radio. So my maiden name was Karen Hamble. My married name is Montalbano. Um, I attended Hofstra from 1976 to 1980. And I believe my years were probably 1977 to 1980 in the radio station. Okay. Uh, what kind of uh, shows did you host or work on while you were at Hofstra Radio? So WVHC, which is what it was called at that point, had expanded its hours during my time there. So there were a lot of openings. So I think we almost actually doubled our time because there was concern about having, if we didn't have enough on-air time, that we would have to share the spectrum of 88.7 FM. So they expanded things out. So I started, I don't even remember which one I started with. But I did a jazz show called The Jazz Spectrum. I did a classical music show called Even Song. The show that everybody wanted to do was called Changes, which was rock and roll. And then I also started a Italian show called Una Vista Italiana. And then they would pull me in. We didn't really have a news department. But they would pull me in when they did election night coverage or some of the other things. Um, they did a radio news show. I think it was called Radius. So occasionally I would do something with that, too. So I did a lot of on-air work um, with shows like that. Okay. And uh, while you were at WVHC, did you have any titles or management positions? Yes. I was started out as the assistant executive engineer and then became the executive engineer. Okay. Um, did you use your real name on air? Did you have an on-air name or any nicknames? No, I used my full name, my real name. Okay. Uh, so this is a two-part question and, you know, answer it in whatever order makes sense. But I'm always curious what first brought people to the radio station. And then for those of us who weren't there when you were, what was the station like? Where was it? What buildings maybe it was in? What did it look like? Uh, maybe some of the people that you met. What was the, what do you remember from first getting to WBHC? So when I committed to Hofstra University, I went into communication arts and I wanted to do broadcasting. The broadcasting curriculum at that time was very top heavy in TV. I think they only had maybe two radio courses. So my first thing was to drift downstairs in Memorial Hall where the TV studios were and start hanging out down there and getting involved there. Things happened and I didn't feel as comfortable there and somehow I made my way up the stairs to the second floor of Memorial Hall where the offices were for WVHC. I got involved in a number of different ways. I walked in and the first thing they said to me was, well, you need to go and take training courses. You have to train to be an announcer. You have to train to be an engineer. And at the time, the FCC regulations where you also had to get a license, which meant that you had to go into Varick Street in Manhattan and get the license, which was a third class license with broadcast endorsement. Once you had that license, then you could sign on to the logs and operate the board and the basically what it was was for the transmitter. Anybody could operate the board, but to sign on to the logs for the transmitter, you had to have the license. So the thing they said to me was, well, you can do remote work and we can train you that real quick and you can do that. 
So I think my first remotes that I did were for the football team. And at that time, Hofstra Stadium, the AstroTurf was dangerous. So they did not play over in the stadium. Instead, they played on grass behind Memorial Hall, which actually is where the building now stands that houses all the communication arts. So I was up in the stands, had to take all of this, the M67 Shore mixer, the microphones, the microphone stands, put them in a suitcase, drag it out of the basement Memorial Hall, go up the, um, the ladder into the press box, set it all up. I remember Jeffrey looking at me saying, you know, a couple of years ago, they would not have let women up there. They were mm. probably afraid that they were going to wear skirts while they were going up the ladder. So I was up there doing that. And then they also had remotes in um, Hempstead Town Hall. They would run the Sunday night concerts. And those were really very interesting. I worked with a person who I became very good friends with named Wayne Kurtzman. He did all the announcing for it. And I often did the engineering for the remotes. And you'd sometimes you'd have a piano. Sometimes you'd have a four-piece wind um, or a string quartet. And you had to learn to mic all of the different music. And we had actually a box, a mold box, what we put in all of our connections into, and it went back to the station. Doing the remotes, everything was very, we were very conscious of budget because we really didn't have much of a budget. Hmm. So to do remotes, instead of having a dedicated line, what we did was we ordered telephones and we'd have a telephone line put in and the telephone line would then we'd disconnect the telephone and I'd put two wires into the telephone line, run that up to the Shure M67 mix, mixer, set that all up. And that was how it went back to the studio. So they'd pick it up off that telephone line. And that's how we broadcast many of these games. The, as I said, the concerts, were different. We had a malt box with a dedicated line that came out of the town of Hempstead. I also walked in and I had, and I only did this once. I saw a, an article or actually there's a, it's an East End paper that's still there. It's called Dan's Papers. Sure. And I used to read it all the time. I was out there all the time with my family and I read it all the time. And he had this great little story called The Reindeer Who Couldn't Fly. And I looked and I said, you know what? This would make a great radio play. And I walked up to Linda Dayleader, who was the program director at the time. And I said, wouldn't this make a great radio play? You should consider doing it. And she said, do it. And I said, what? She said, <laughs> do it. I said, but I don't know. She says, we'll help you. So I had, and it was really quite interesting and fun, a little bit frustrating at times because Jeffrey Krause loved I think doing these radio dramas and he engineered all of it. And we used the four track, which was very high technology that very few people actually touched the four track machines that were down in the little, in the basement studios, which were in the little theater, which is now I forget what Mason hall or something like that. Hmm. And we did all of the vocal, the voice, and I had to cast it and ask, people to cast in whatever. And Jeffrey actually did the grandfather because he had that deep, very sonorous, sonorous, I, forget it, forget that word. He had that deep, beautiful broadcast voice. 
And I actually ended up being the reindeer, which to make it a high pitched, um, to give it that high pitch, he wrapped the capstan. So the tape went through a little faster. So, and then he, we set about putting music to it and it ran for many, many years as the Christmas part of this Christmas special. I don't know whatever happened to it. Um, so we, I, that's how I kind of got drawn in and I would just hang out. The radio station offices were a great place up on that second floor. We had big gigantic windows and people would just hang out and at the desks and everything. And somehow they figured out that I was pretty good at scheduling for the engineering department. And I was working with Tony Miller and somehow I got handed all the scheduling. And so when the time came for the next round of executive board, they pulled me in as executive engineer. Hmm. It was actually quite an interesting time because I said, as I said, they doubled their time, which meant that I had to find people to fill the seats who were licensed and could do the work. So we went, I think, from like two o'clock in the afternoon to midnight to two to two on weekdays, and then from like something like 10 to two on weekends. And that was a lot of what I did. And I also ended up teaching a lot of the classes and um, getting people to teach classes. So I was constantly around doing all the stuff. So it, it sounds like you get pulled in pretty quickly. And I, I just want to make sure I'm getting the scene. So the offices are upstairs in Memorial Hall, which is something I only found out recently. I didn't know that was ever there. The broadcast facilities were downstairs in the little theater. Right. right? All the way across campus. <laughs> right. Which makes sense. <laughs> um, so, so the broadcast is there. And if I understand correctly in the little theater there was there was a an on-air studio and uh maybe an announcing booth was there a separate production facility or was that production stuff done when the station was off air so it was most of the production was done off air there were mm. when you walked into the you walked down the steps in little theater and you walked into what was like an almost entrance foyer and then you had a little hallway that went to the back on your left-hand side, you had basically the jazz library. On the right-hand side, you had Studio A, which had the rock and roll library. You went straight back and off to the left, you had a small studio kind of, which had uh, maybe two, one or two tape recorders in it. And then you had the master control, which had your gates 10 pot mixer, your two turntables behind you had your two ampacks. You had the little phone that can, one phone can went up to the radio station offices. One phone was an outside line and you had also the eight track. I think it was four track or eight track that was behind that. Hmm. It was, it was a very small space. We had, um, I think we had one, one air conditioner down there. And I will say it, it was really basically uh, a fire trap. And I will tell you a funny, funny story about this fire trap. 
So, and, and this has to do with the way also women were viewed. And I have a few stories about that. But I was down there and we knew at one point, somehow the New York State Dormitory Authority had taken over these buildings, the dormitories. And for some reason, what became Mason Hall was known as the Little Theater. And they insisted that you had to have sprinklers. And Jeffrey fought for them to be the sprinklers that were powder. And they said, no, it has to be water. And the guys come down and they're like, yeah, we instill it. We're going to test the sprinkler. I said, how are you testing the sprinklers? Well, you know, I said, no, no, tell me how you're testing the sprinklers. Oh, don't worry your little head about it. And I said, I'm sitting here in the middle of all this electronic equipment and you're telling me not to worry about it? Yeah, yeah, no, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. So eventually I got to Jeffrey and I said, Jeffrey, look at this. What happens if he goes, don't worry about it? He says, once they've tested it, it's getting turned off. Wow. That's, <laughs> so that's wow. what happened. I, I, the, the, once you started talking about that, I just I was physically holding my breath, just waiting for you know, the bad thing that's going to come. Because clearly they didn't understand what a danger that would be to the equipment and to the people in the room. It's amazing. And we only had one entrance in and out of that place. So once you were in master control, um, you had to go back down the hallway and up the stairs. You had no other way out. Wow. Sorry, to to jump back to what you were talking about before about doing remotes and going to to cover the football games. uh, Did you go through any training classes before you did that? Or did they just sort of show you the equipment and say, good luck? Like what, what was the process of getting on the air? So, yes, I had to go through training classes for a lot of stuff. The remote wasn't a specific training class. The remote was kind of, if I remember correctly, you showed up and they worked beside you and they said, this is what you've got to do. And they showed you how to do it. It wasn't really that difficult um, because it was basically you connected in the, the wires, you connected up the the microphones and the wire to where you were broadcasting to through And it was a really simple way to do it. So a couple of times of showing you and they felt you could understand it, then they put you off on your own. But for announcing you had to go through the the classes and the engineering, you had to go through the classes. The the process of getting the FCC license and and having to take, uh, I, I recall taking a test, but I don't believe we had to go down to Varick Street, which which I've heard mentioned uh, by several people. So the these were non-credit classes, but you still had to do them on top of classes you were taking. And I imagine they were pretty intensive at the time. What they did was they, if I remember correctly, they basically gave you a booklet. You studied the booklet. You asked any questions from somebody you might know. And then, um, you know, when you felt you were ready to go take the test. You just made the appointment and you went, I don't even know if you had to make an appointment. You just showed mm-hmm. up in Varick street. I don't remember. And you went and you just took the test and then they would send you your broadcast license if you passed. Okay. I do know there was, so there were different degrees of the license. The first class license really was prime. That allowed you to do maintenance on the the transmitter and, and handle a lot more than just taking the readings, et cetera. 
And that was very, very intense. We had started to try, um, a couple of people had started and I had tried joining them to study for that. And we never really completed a, to study for that. But there were people who went on to get their first class license who, um, who used it along mm. the way. Hmm. Um, okay. So you get through the training. Do you recall your, your first time on the air or your first time running one of these remotes? I don't really recall it clearly, but I will tell you that I'm sure knowing me, I was probably nervous. Hmm. Um, but I really don't remember it though. I did have a friend, um, who recently pulled up the memory of me being at the board. And I think he said he knew it was my first time being at the board engineering for his show, which was probably a rock and roll show, if I remember correctly and saying, you know, he thought I was very capable, which <laughs> I would not have said of myself at any point at that beginning point, but you know, that's uh, that's that encouragement. Uh, I think many of us need as we're first getting on the air, first learning how to operate the board uh, because we are overwhelmed and we are nervous. And, and then suddenly it becomes second nature. You know, it's, it becomes second nature. I eventually, um, when we were doing the changes show, which was the rock and roll show. And that ran from, I think it ran from like 10 to two or 11 to two. I think it was 11 to two at night. And everybody who ran that show pretty much comboed, which was you ran your own board and you announced and you pulled everything and you put everything away before you left the studio and you became really good at it so that you were down to the record on the player on the turntable at the end of the night was the last record that had to be put away. So you walked out of there at 2.02. Right. I would be remiss if I didn't go back and ask about, you mentioned doing covering the football games mm -hmm. and being a woman covering that. And Jeff's remark about that, maybe a few years ago, they wouldn't have let you. I was wondering if you wouldn't mind talking a little bit more about uh, what it was like uh, being a woman in the press box covering a sporting event in those years. I was lucky in that the people I worked with in radio, that they were fine. Um, and I just was in the background, just turned a few knobs and they went on and, and that was it. Those were not really where I had um, came across this as much. I remember when I first went to order as the executive engineer, I went to order the telephone line and I told them, I made the mistake of telling them what I wanted it for. And they said, oh, I said, no, no, I want a telephone line. I don't want a dedicated line. Um, I just want a telephone line. Oh, no, no, no. We know what you want. We know what you want. And of course, they put in the dedicated line, which was much more expensive, which blew the budget. Hmm. And I looked at Jeffrey and I said, I'm never ordering another line. They will not listen to me. I'm not ordering another line. Somebody else has got to do this. The most egregious one was somebody called who was an alumni and he wanted to make an audio tape, which was fine. We did that all the time for an audition. And I said, well, you have to talk to the station manager, which was Scott Cinnamon. And he called Scott, gave him Scott's extension in the dorm. And he, Scott's gave him permission. And he calls back and he says, so, um, yeah, I, I can make the tape, but I got to speak to the executive engineer. I said, speaking. And he said, a woman. And I said, do you want to make a tape? And he said, yeah. Um, 
And along the way, I, I also had one other thing. And I don't know if that was, if it was just um, because the way the politics were going, but I remember one time I was doing one of the election nights and I got wind that something was not quite right, that they were very concerned about a seat. And I walked over to the guy and I said, you know, da, 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 I want to ask you about this. He says, well, well who are you with? I said, WVHC. He goes, where's that? Hofstra. He goes, oh, I don't have time to talk to you. And I kind of looked at him and I said, okay, I'll sit on your desk and wait until you tell me you have time. And he went, okay, <laughs> I'll talk to you. Learning how to think on your feet. That's, uh, that's impressive. Get to, to get what you need, to get what you want. That's, that's, that's great. You had to do that quite a lot. Um, when things went wrong, and we were talking about this um, in one of the chat rooms on a Facebook um, group, when things went wrong, you just had to figure out how to do it. And that was it. Hmm. And it was a great preparation for life, you know, that, okay, this is the way it's supposed to go and it didn't go, but how do I make it right? How do I deal with this? How do I deal with the person who calls up and is complaining to me that I didn't pay, play that Pink Floyd song they wanted? Or could you play this and you know you're never going to play it, but you say, yes, I'll, I'll, I'll put it on the list, you know? Right. And you learn how to deal with people. And it, it wasn't just the outside people. You were working constantly with so many people within the radio station and so many different ways that they approach things. So you learn to work with people and the other part of it that was really a good learning experience was you learned what a deadline was because if you didn't have hit the deadline, you had dead air. So, and that was like the worst thing you could possibly have. So you knew what a deadline was. You knew you had to figure it out. And if you didn't meet the deadline, you had to have something there. So. You, uh, you mentioned a few names, uh, earlier and and you can bring them up again or, or mention other names but i was wondering who were the people that helped you uh get comfortable at the station or gave you good advice or that you listened to and thought i like what they're doing i want to do that or i'm going to learn something from what they're doing so there were a lot of people um i've worked with um i think linda dayleader was always a great supporter um she was a pro- uh, program director there. I knew Steve Graziano, who was there at the time. Jim Helfgott was the station manager. Um, when I first started, I had a number of people that I'm actually still in touch with. One of them is George Thomas Musgrave III, as he was known, or GTM3, because of the way he signed off on the logs. Hmm. George went on to a wonderful career um, at ABC for a number, quite a number of years. Um, and he was just one of those people who quietly did what he was supposed to do and helped you along the way. Wayne Kurtzman and Jenny Eaton were, who ended up getting married um, to each other. So we make sure we get that straight. Hmm. They were really good friends and we hung out a lot. Um, but the one that I really want to mention was Elliot Lifson. Elliot I don't think he ever went to Hofstra, but I don't know how he got involved in the Hofstra radio station. He was just this kind of big teddy bear. Um, and he worked for WHLI. He had his first class license. He could fix anything pretty much. He 
was, I think, their chief engineer over at WHLI. But he did the Changes show, and he also did a lot of the production work. He, like, he would do this fantastic montages, and you go, oh, yeah, you could drive a truck through that, and you wouldn't hear what, what he was talking about, you know, <laughs> as far as his edits went. But I think he was the one, and looking back, that gave me the best piece of advice, which is a good piece of advice for life as well as engineering. And that was, everybody's going to tell you how to do this and the way they do it and why you should do it. and You should do it that way and this way and whatever. He says, listen to it all and then take from it what works for you and use that. If it's, if it's possible to go back into the mindset of when you first got to the radio station. We have the benefit of hindsight and, and looking back and all the stories, but can you recall what you were hoping the radio station would be or what you thought it would be when you first got there? I thought it would be something that would be part of my learning experience as a student in broadcasting, um, that I would pick up experience actually doing it, um, doing the broadcasting, doing the work of, I thought, see, I always thought I was going to be in engineering. Uh, I came from, I loved theater, but I always seemed to bomb auditions. And I even bombed a few auditions professionally as well in, in radio. And I always thought I would be in the engineering side. That's where I, why I wanted to go into the broadcasting. And somehow I found myself always on the other side. <laughs> doing, as well as the engineering, doing the announcing. And, and actually, I even wrote news for a while and worked in a newsroom, which surprised me that I landed there. But that that was, just to go a side note, one of the things that happens is that people who worked in the radio station were very generous in helping other people who had worked in the radio station at different times from them. And there was one of these staff dinners that I went to, and there was a guy named Howard Liberman, who I was talking to. And he says, what are you doing? I said, nah, I'm between jobs right now. I have nothing going on. I've got to figure it out. He goes, I work for Wins." He says, apply there, use my name. He says, apply as a writer. I said, okay. So I applied as a writer and they looked at me and they said, yeah, you don't have the chops, the, the experience for the writing, but we'll take you in as an MPA, news production assistant. And I said, fine, let me try that. And that's how I ended up spending 17 years at Wins. Hmm. So that was part of the networking that was maybe not as formal as people think of these days, but it was definitely networking where people would um, look out for you. Oh, you worked at WVHC. Yeah, we, we know what that that is. We know what you've gone through over there. And you know, we can recommend you or not recommend you, depending on how it worked. But I saw it as um, as a place that I would get experience. And also, it was an enjoyable place to be. You hung out with people. You talked with them. It was better. You know, I was a commuting student. So when I had downtime between classes, where was I going to hang? And it was ended up being the radio station offices. Karen, these these are wonderful stories. Thank you for sharing them with us. And uh, I'm going to come up with some more questions. And I'm sure you have more stories. And we can do this again sometime soon. As everybody says, I have plenty of stories. <laughs> <laughs>
and I would love to to do it again. And hopefully, maybe I'll find a few more stories out of the deep recesses of my brain. <laughs>